welcome to the final installment of our Collaborative Transformation podcast series on public hospital M&A. We're excited to bring you perspectives on trends and opportunities in the market as they relate to transactions involving public hospitals, with this episode focusing on key regulatory considerations and planning for post-transaction success. Joining us today are McDermott Partners, Emily Cook and Megan Rooney, and Juniper Advisories, Rex Bergdorfer. Rex has nearly two decades of investment banking and strategic financial advisory services experience, during which time he has advised all forms of nonprofit hospital systems on merger and acquisition transactions. Emily is a partner in McDermott's health practice, counseling healthcare provider clients on the industry's complex regulatory and reimbursement landscape, including how to evaluate and mitigate compliance risks on both new business initiatives and existing service lines. As a recognized national authority on the 340B drug pricing program, Emily advises healthcare providers and other stakeholders on a range of critical issues related to implementation, compliance, and advocacy. Megan is a partner in McDermott's health practice, where she focuses her practice on representation of hospitals, health systems, and healthcare and life sciences companies, and assisting them in completing transformative collaborations. A former healthcare professional with firsthand clinical experience, Megan has unique insight into the business challenges and opportunities facing her clients. Rex, Emily, and Megan, welcome. Going back to the first episodes in the series, we discussed public hospital transaction trends, stakeholder implications, and considerations for doing deals in the sunshine. But as we all know, agreeing upon a deal is only the first step towards partnership success. Once the legal and financial terms are agreed to, there are a variety of necessary approvals and regulatory considerations. Regulatory compliance can impact a party's billing status or ability to participate in a certain program, which not only stand to impact the bottom line, but also determine whether a deal makes strategic sense. Megan, what are the typical regulatory approvals that a hospital and health systems must anticipate? Well, healthcare facilities are, of course, incredibly regulated. A typical hospital or health system holds dozens and dozens of licenses, permits, and accreditations. So there are many stakeholders to notify or seek approval from. In fact, sometimes we tell our hospital and health system clients embarking on a deal that it would probably be quicker and easier from a regulatory perspective to purchase a nuclear warhead than to acquire a healthcare facility. But that said, there are some things that you need to be mindful of. And this is any hospital embarking on a transaction, not necessarily just a public or governmental hospital. There are regulatory approvals that you may need prior to being able to get the deal done. And this can often impact the overall timing of the transaction as well and managing expectations. So these typical pre-closing regulatory approvals are very fact-specific. They're dependent on the size of the transaction, the state that you're in, um, and the type of you know, business lines or facilities that are involved. For example, there may be attorney general approval that is required in some states, such as California or New Jersey. There is an approval process for even you know, nonprofit hospital deals. Sometimes you might assume that it would only be if it was a for-profit aspect, but it could be nonprofit as well. And in the states that have AG approval, it may require public hearings, the production of voluminous documents. So this is something that you need to know right at the outset. If you need attorney general approval, how is this going to impact your overall timeframe? There may be, depending on the size of the transaction, 
and the parties involved the need to get antitrust approvals, including Hart-Scott-Rodino approval from the FTC. Again, this is something that you would need to build into your timeline as well. And if the transaction is one that may invite additional scrutiny from an antitrust perspective, such as a second request, this is also something to be mindful of early on and built into the process. There may be also, depending on the type of the transaction, if there's going to be you know, a new pharmacy director or a new owner, you may need pre-approval for pharmacy licenses or, or other licenses or things that could require a, a resurvey. Again, this is something to be mindful of from a timing perspective. And they're also really minor and kind of seemingly silly in the scheme of things, pre-closing approvals that are needed as well, including FCC radio licenses and the like. So I think, Nicole, it's a long way of saying that there are maybe many regulatory approvals that are needed pre-closing, and it's just really important to identify them early on when building the timeframe and expectations. But those are things you have to have to get the deal done. There are also regulatory considerations that could impact the bottom line of the transaction and if it really makes sense. So for these reasons, I think it's really exciting that we have Emily with us today to talk about some of the regulatory issues and considerations that can impact whether or not you want to get the deal done. So building off that, Emily, what do public or government-owned hospitals need to be mindful of with respect to 340B participation? Thank you, Nicole. The 340B program allows for eligible healthcare providers that are known as covered entities to access significant discounts on certain outpatient drugs. Not all hospitals are eligible to participate in the 340B program, but in order to qualify, a hospital must be either a nonprofit or public hospital. And with the exception of certain rural hospitals known as critical access hospitals, Hospitals that participate in the 340B program must meet or exceed a certain disproportionate share of hospital percentage threshold, known as the DISH percentage. In general, this DISH percentage, for purposes of the 340B program, is intended to approximate the volume of uninsured and indigent patients that are served by the hospital. The 340B program limits the prices that manufacturers of drugs may charge for medications that are sold to the covered entities that participate in the 340B program. And as a condition of coverage of their products under the Medicare and Medicaid programs, drug manufacturers must agree to those discounts to the 340B entities. In the context of transactions and ongoing operations of hospitals that participate in the 340B program, it is important to ensure that the hospital retains its nonprofit or public status and that the patient mix continues to support the necessary percentage threshold for participation in the 340B program. If the hospital loses either that nonprofit or public status or if that dish percentage falls below the threshold necessary to participate, the hospital will lose eligibility to participate in the 340B program and then therefore lose those significant discounts on outpatient drugs. So critical access hospitals definitely face their own set of challenges in the M&A landscape. Emily, can you lay out for us what we mean by critical access hospitals and what is significant about having this status? Absolutely. Critical access hospitals are a specific designation of hospital typically used in connection with the Medicare program. Critical access hospitals are rural hospitals with 25 or fewer inpatient beds that also must meet certain additional criteria related to, among other things, their distance from other hospitals, staffing, and patient length of stay. 
Critical access hospitals are eligible to receive cost-based reimbursement from the Medicare program, as well as cost-based reimbursement or other enhanced reimbursement from state Medicaid programs. And Rex, what should these critical access hospitals be doing to ensure they can continue serving their communities in this increasingly challenging landscape? Well, I think Emily hit on it. Critical access hospitals are performing a necessary role in the community. They're far enough away from other facilities and the population relies on them. They were under pretty significant strain going into COVID, really building up over the last 10 years as the management of hospitals has become more complicated. Legally, financially, medically, all signs were pointing toward the you know, business environment getting more and more difficult, uh, complying with all of these esoteric regulations and understanding how to position the system going forward has been really challenging from a lean manager standpoint. So I, I think most are now of the belief that they can provide better care at a lower price by forming regional partnerships to better coordinate the care across their region and you know, give patients a better product. The news isn't all bad. The value of a hospital is really a function of two things. It's the market that that hospital serves and the share of that market that the hospital commands. And in critical access hospitals world, usually those two things are good. They have a good share of their market and they have a loyal patient base. And if they can receive some of the benefits of a larger system, usually that's the pathway to an ability to thrive into the future. Thanks, Rex. And Emily, can you talk to us about what critical access hospitals need to be mindful of when they do a transaction? What are some of the diligence questions that need to be asked? And is there even a chance that the transaction could put their status at risk? Sure. As mentioned, critical access hospitals are subject to very rigid eligibility requirements, and failure to comply with those eligibility requirements can result in loss of critical access hospital status and, correspondingly, the loss of that enhanced reimbursement for Medicare and, in some cases, Medicaid. Due to various statutory grandfathering provisions, for some critical access hospitals, there may not be an opportunity to be redesignated as a critical access hospital if the critical access hospital loses eligibility to be designated as a critical access hospital. The most common reasons for losses in eligibility are changes in the rural status of the area where the facility is located, opening of new outpatient locations too close to other hospitals to meet those distance requirements, for critical access hospital eligibility or construction of newer replacement facilities without government review and approval of those construction projects. In the course of diligence, therefore, it is always important to obtain the original documents associated with the designation of the hospital as a critical access hospital. And in our experience, that may be more difficult than it sounds. There are critical access hospitals that may have been designated now almost 25 years ago when the program was first created. And in some cases, the hospitals may not have retained that original documentation. In those cases, it may be necessary to reach out to either the state, often the state office of rural health is a good starting point, or sometimes even to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the CMS regional office that may have been involved in the original designation of that hospital as a critical access hospital. 
In addition to obtaining those original documents associated with the designation to understand the specific criteria that that hospital originally met to participate and may continue to need to meet to participate, it's also important to obtain documentation to support compliance with other critical access hospital requirements, such as the location requirements, to support that all locations of the critical access hospital are the necessary distance away from other facilities that may be located nearby. Emily makes really good points about the you know, complexity of some of these government programs and the rigid compliance that hospitals uh, operate under. We've seen it in the transaction world become increasingly time-consuming and difficult in the period between a letter of intent and definitive agreement for the buyer in particular to get comfortable with the accounting standards and other reimbursement-related subjects. And so exclusivity seems to be taking longer. You know, It used to be 60 to 90 days. Now, 120 plus is the norm. The involvement of outside consultants to do quality of earnings analyses and the like has just made the negotiations of a definitive take longer and slightly more difficult. So these are good topics that you guys are hitting on. And Rex, just to expand on that concept, something that we advise our hospital and health system clients, particularly if they are the target, is to have all of the documents that Emily mentioned, supporting their critical access hospital status or their 340B program participation cataloged and ready to go so that it can be quickly analyzed. Because as you mentioned, it is taking longer for buyers to get comfortable with the state of the union of their targets. And frankly, if they think a hospital has critical access hospital status or will be able to get it and that's at risk, that could impact their their desirability of doing the deal. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, preparation in getting one's, you know, house in order before the inspectors come through makes a lot of sense. Goes such a long way. And even if it just demonstrates it provides a level of comfort to to an acquirer if they feel that things are a little more organized. It can, even if maybe there is a messy room in the house, if the information is is given promptly and can be worked through, it's it's a lot better than even if you have um, you know, no issues, but you're a little disorganized. Yeah. So we've covered the regulatory portion of public hospital transactions. Now let's move into discussing what's needed for post-transaction success. Rex, what are some of the ways that public hospitals can work to drive quality and financial improvements after a deal is completed? Well, I guess in that scenario, you're assuming the uh, local government hospital joined a larger, you know, private system, and the you know process that they underwent to make that decision at the board and management level relied heavily on the acquirer, you know, convincing them that they were able to perform better than the standalone facility could. So the, the kind of implicit selection of who the partner is and how it's structured makes a big difference. Usually a leading form of financial consideration in a change of control transaction is a capital commitment to go toward certain uh, investments in facilities or training or recruiting and certainly you see that when those you know teaching options are enhanced 
things like safety standards and protocols are usually improved. The other thing we'd note is the form of transaction. We've gone back and studied those that had kind of low degrees of integration and those that had high degrees of integration. And the latter group has performed better in aggregate. So when when two companies consolidate and, you know, at first, oftentimes boards are populated by their proportionate contribution, those that then become self-perpetuating and that really act as one uh, into the future tend to perform better. Great. Thanks again. And now a very important consideration in these transactions is obviously employees. Depending on the transaction, there may be changes to the benefits and general employment terms. Megan, what steps should public hospitals be taking to alleviate employee concerns and decrease the potential for disruption post-deal? Communicate, communicate, communicate. Uh, It's important well before a deal is consummated that there be a clear communication plan to employees, you know, particularly if there's organized labor regarding what the employment transition is going to be. This can be done in many forms, including if you have a transaction where deal documents are going to be in the public eye, which is very typical for a government or publicly owned hospital you might put something into the deal documents themselves that telegraphs what's going to happen with the employees, particularly if it is going to provide comfort to the employees. You never want something to be latched onto and taken out of proportion. But if you can put in a transaction document, for example, that the acquirer is going to leave the workforce in place at closing, even if that's not a commitment beyond closing, that can be helpful to have out there to kind of front any concerns. But what's going to be most important is the direct communication with employees in the form of emails, town halls, or other communications to make it very clear, you know, what is and what is not happening with respect to their employment and their benefits and what needs to happen if they're, you know, changing employers or or even letting them know that they're not. One other thing, though, is when you are doing these town halls and email communications, which, again, are very, very important to be done, anything that you put in there, you should assume will be sent to the newspaper, will be sent around. I can't tell you how many times we've learned that you know information has gotten out ahead of, of a PR process because it was part of employee communiques. So that's also something to be mindful of. This is something you want to be really tight on and communicative about. Great points, Megan. And Emily, let's close out with what should be done to ensure success as it relates to participation in the 340B program. The 340B program is currently under significant scrutiny from many stakeholders, as well as from Congress, who are examining many issues associated with drug pricing. All providers participating in the 340B program, regardless of whether they've recently gone through a transaction or not, should ensure that they are engaged in routine compliance oversight to identify and correct any compliance issues as quickly as possible. In addition, we're expecting a particular focus on Medicaid billing of 340B drugs in the next year or so in light of recent federal enforcement action and are strongly encouraging entities participating in the 340B program to focus compliance attention on Medicaid billing. Great. Well, thank you, everyone. This has been very informative. 
And thanks so much for listening. For more insight and analysis about today's changing healthcare M&A landscape, check out McDermott's Health and Life Sciences News blog at healthlifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021 McDermott Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.